You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. I'm your host, Brandon, and this week I am joined by two special guests for episode 87. I have with me Kirsten and Christopher Shockey, the authors of Fermented Vegetables, Creative Recipes for Fermenting 65 Vegetables and Herbs in Krauts, Kimchis, Brine, Pickles, Chutneys, Relishes, and Pastes. Welcome to the show. Thank you. We're glad Thank you, Brandon. I just want to start by telling everyone that you should go out and get this book. I mean, you will not be disappointed. This, Even if you've been fermenting for years or you've never fermented vegetables, uh, just just get it. It's, it's great. And with that said, uh, there are quite a few fermentation books out there that have come out recently. So why should people get this book? What differentiates it? One thing that I think differentiates it, it's only vegetables. So there's, there's a lot of fermentation books that are out that cover a great, you know, there's just, there's a wide breadth of fermentation processes, as you know. And we wanted to focus on just vegetables. We wanted to write really that A to Z complete book on vegetable fermentation so that if anyone wanted to come, came across any vegetable, there'd be one place they could go to know if it ferments well and if it does, who does it play with well on the crock and who does it not play with well on the crock. So that was our initial intention for the book. Well, let's just jump right in. Let's just talk about this book. Could you give just a, a brief breakdown of, of the structure of this book, what your ideas were with, behind it? Well, the book came from a lot of places, but one of them was definitely from being at the farm stand, farmer's market, and all the questions we got, which sort of morphed eventually into our classes. So our thought was we would really like to try to to put together a book that moves through the process as succinctly as possible because, as you know, people are a little nervous about fermentation. And so the first part of the book is, is really what's going on, you know, what's, what's the science, what's happening. Um, the, second, the second part is the how-to, and it is a pictorial guide showing the process of sauerkraut, kimchi, um, brine pickles, and then what we call condiments. And then the third part is, is the bulk of the book. That's the A to Z section, which is just like it sounds. You can pick a vegetable, parsnips or sunchokes or whatever, and, and it'll be there. And then the last thing was just giving people ideas. This is, this is sort of a new ingredient out there and giving people ideas how they can use it on the plate, breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert, and um, Christopher's favorite section, the cocktails. That 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 cocktail section. Uh, could you could you elaborate on that a little bit? Like, what are you doing with uh, these cocktails? Well, it started with we started bringing brine to the farmers market, and we got some great American whiskey glasses, and we were selling brine shots, and we had either people that would come up who had knew about brine and loved to take the shots. It's also a great European hangover remedy. So we had a Saturday morning market. So a lot of Friday night partiers who would come by and uh, take one or two shots. And then when we started working on the book, uh, Kirsten's sister worked at a great restaurant, Irish pub in Ashland. And she started mentioning how we could combine some of the brines, the taste of the brines with different uh, drink combinations. And so that got us thinking. And so one day we brought a bunch of brines. They brought a bunch of alcohol. We met at the farmhouse and we had one great evening of recipe experimentation. And we wrote some notes, um, not, not all of them. I think a few great drinks escaped us because no one actually wrote, wrote it down, but we got a few in there. And then we had a 
two other subsequent trial periods to just make sure everything worked much less raucous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that that would be the 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 most I guess ex- exciting partying section of writing a fermentation book like this. Otherwise, since you went through all of these different kinds of vegetables, you're sampling a lot, um, a lot of vegetables here. I mean, you're working with a lot of different things and talking about how they go together or which ones maybe don't go together. How long of a process was this? I mean, when you were, when you're working with all these different vegetables, is this over like a long period of time just through your personal experience or did most of this experimentation happen with the actual writing of the book? I think a little bit of both. We've been fermenting for a long time time since 1999 but the um, the truth is until we were in business four or five years ago now we mostly did cabbage so once we started doing it commercially we really it was really important to us to use the local in-season vegetables and that was what started the experimentation so the first year and a half the vegetable experimentations were really around the market process. And then as we realized that so many of these vegetables are are really great to use, we started experimenting more. And then the process of writing the book was three years, so there was plenty of time for experimentation. (laughs) So there were some that that were, were just forced by the fact that the book is an A to Z book. So spinach, for example, I don't think I would have ever tried otherwise. Yeah, and I, I haven't I haven't run into that one yet in the book. So you do have spinach in there? We do. What do you do with spinach? You know, you salt it. It creates quite a bit of brine as soon as the salt hits the leaves and press it. And it ferments just like a kraut. What I really like to do is add a few onions, a little garlic, some lemon, and some oregano, simply because that to me kind of denotes a Greek meal, and and so that was that was what I started doing because I was kind of scared that the spinach wouldn't taste good, so I was going to put a lot of flavor in there to disguise it. But it turns out the spinach tastes just fine. <laughs> and and that would be my initial thought is that it would kind of taste a little bit gross, uh, gross, and and also with the the green leafy greens i mean they're generally not the texture isn't always that great and and that's where it was great having having met you kirsten at the reedsburg fermentation fest and you were so kind to share some of your shiso leaf ferment and in the book i also see that you have a whole leaf ferment section as would this spinach fall into that kind of category of it's kind of more of a dry salting ish sort of that you're not adding a a lot of of liquid to the environment is that what makes it work? Yeah, definitely. But the leaves, once you start uh, salting them, they they create quite a bit of liquid on their own, and so um, you do have a, a plenty of brine. Whereas with the shiso leaves and the basil leaves and some of these herbs, um, you don't have as much. And the interesting thing about the spinach, just back to that mush that we all imagine, you know. Those of us that understand the process of the salt, hardening the pectins, you know, creating the crunch, our collective conscience of what cooked spinach tastes like and feels like, um, I think sort of negates that in our minds. <laughs> so we all imagine mush, but what actually happens is the spinach stays um, 
somewhat crispy. Yeah, it is a it is a big surprise, and I've I mean I've done a little bit with leafy greens, but for the most part I've stayed away because the texture hasn't been exactly what I wanted, and and so maybe like that's a little different than some of these other whole leaf ferments that like the the shiso um, leaf. I mean though that really actually really surprised me. I was I thought that was delicious, and so would it be similar shiso or basil? Are they going to be similar kind of flavors? And I, I guess for someone that hasn't done a whole leaf ferment, because that's kind of one of the um, the more different ones that definitely sets it apart from a lot of the other fermentation books that I've seen. Um, what should, what should they do? What, like what's different and in, in why maybe why should they um, try holy ferments? The why is because some of these herbs, when you dry them, you know, basil has those great flavors and volatile oils, but as soon as you dry it, you lose a lot of it. So I, I just started experimenting with basil and cilantro and some of my favorite summer herbs that I wanted to find a way to preserve that fresh flavor a little bit more, you know, to use throughout the season. And so that's, that's why I started doing that. And, um, it works. You get this concentrated flavor. It of course changes like many of the fermented foods, you know, you get complexity and flavor that, that isn't there when it's fresh, but it retains, it retains the flavor and the energy of the fresh versus the dried herb. So I do have a row of jars in our refrigerator that is just that. It's it's sort of my fermented spice rack. Um, and then like the shiso leaves or the basil leaves, the Thai basil especially, um, I'll make a Thai curry and throw a few of those um, Thai basil leaves in at the end of the curry and it'll be like we threw in some fresh leaves. Really? So, okay. So that, see, now I think that alone is it, people need to try that. If you've been fermenting vegetables, I, I think that this is something that a lot of people haven't tried. Do you know, is this, because I know there's kind of the Himalayan traditions with the, the gundruk and like fermenting these things, letting them turn a little bit more mushy and then uh, dehydrating them, turning them to a powder and a seasoning. Is this something though that, is this a little bit different? I mean, did this come out of any practice that you um, learned of or, or knew of, or is this really just out of your experimentation over time? Really out of my experimentation over time. We did Gundruk a few different times early on, and we just were never happy with it. Um, so it was it was just uh, experimenting. And I've actually been, even since the book is written, I've been having a lot of fun making different herbal combinations now and rubs and and all, all these kind of things. Yeah, I think that the, I think that that's a lot of the thing that is a real um, great selling point of this book, at least in my read through of it so far, is that there are a lot of those different things that kind of get people thinking outside of the box. I know I've kind of gotten into a phase with uh, my my vegetable fermentation has has been a little a little boring of of late, and I've just been so interested in other kinds of ferments. But um, this book is definitely inspiring me to like really start experimenting with vegetables, and and of course it's winter now. But I mean, I'm really excited for for next next season. Yeah, well, that's great, and that was a lot of our thought behind the book, and was was to get people thinking because we've had so much fun with with the experimentation, and as we were writing the book, one of my you know biggest thoughts throughout to try to to keep encouraging people is to these are all starting points you know we we've we've done this but what can you do and what do you have in your garden and throughout the book we we offer little examples of maybe things 
that might work together. Some of them we've, you know, tried but never actually developed a recipe, and some of them it just was a thought like, hey, this actually sounds good. And so I'm glad you noticed that because that's a lot of what what we were hoping for the book is just to really create that artist of the fer- fermented vegetables. Yeah. And, and I think it definitely comes through and, and you have a, you have kind of a, a term for this too. Like throughout the book, you also use the term fermentistas, which, you know, like Sander Katz, I know has his uh, fermentos and um, you know, so when I saw that at first um, I was like, okay, what is, what is this from? And so I was great to see that uh, Christopher, you had an anecdote in there regarding this. Could you describe how it is that you came up with this fermentistas? Well, we had an identity crisis. Our first uh, farmer's market, you know, it's the beginning of the year, so we don't have pickles. And to, so to call yourself a pickler, immediately people start looking for the dills. And we're months away from having any kind of crunchy dill pickle. And we we went kind of an academic where we're food preservationists, but that really felt more like taxidermy and a lot less like something you wanted to eat. And, um, yeah, Sandor's got a name for it. And we were setting up at a farmer's market in Ashland, and uh, we were still pondering what to call ourselves and how to explain it to people. And um, I was getting our morning cup of coffee from a great little local coffee place, and Kirsten was getting the breakfast burritos because that's what you have to look forward to, right, to get up at 5 o'clock and go to a farmer's market. you got to look forward to coffee and burritos, you know, before the people come. And I was explaining... Um, to the barista who was uh, making our order, and we were talking about mid-story Guatemalan coffee because I used to do stuff in coffee, and I was explaining to him how we were doing these flavor combinations, and he looked at me and he says, well, it sounds like you're a lot like you're a barista of vegetables, you know, of ferments. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's it, exactly. So I came back and I handed Kirsten her coffee and I said, you know where we are? And she said, hungry? And I said, no, we're fermentistas. And it just kind of stuck. We we had a lot of fun with it. So that's how it came about. And did you always then, after that way, refer to yourselves as that at the farmer's market and otherwise? <laughs> we did. Which, you know, in itself was kind of weird in the beginning. But then people really adopted it. And, and you know, what's crazy now is to see people referring to themselves as fermentistas. Um, you know, Kirsten's found references in Europe and Asia, people talking about it. So I think there were other people that just wanted something that reflected more of an artisan and, um, you know, those flavor combinations. I mean, a barista really, if you think about it, they, they do amer- amazing things with a uh, little fermented beans. So we wanted that same kind of expressing artistic talents, you know, with the humble vegetable, make something that you really look forward to. Yeah. And I have to say, I like it as well. I didn't really stick with me. Like when I was first reading it, it was kind of like getting over a little hurdle. I was like, okay, this is a little different. I haven't heard this, this term. And then it's throughout there forever. But once I heard that answer, I was like, oh yeah, it totally makes sense. And I have a background <laughs> in coffee. So like, yeah, that totally fits. So I thought that was, that was great. And uh, one of the other things I think is great in the book are all of these, these photos you have. So you have not only photos that are kind of enticing to get people to crave making these kind of things, but you also have a lot of step-by-step photos. Could you describe a little bit about your 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 thought process behind, I mean, because you really have a lot of step-by-step photos. Was this intentional, like you knew from the get-go that you were going to be including this much imagery in your book, or was this kind of towards the end of the publication process? So this one, we really got to give a shout out to Story Publishing for this, because I think this was really their idea. Uh, and I were really close to finishing the book on our own, and originally it was going to be a self-published book, and we thought we had great photos, you know, as, as you kind of do. And then when Story picked us up, 
we went through the book, and they really wanted to put a lot of emphasis, especially on the beginning and the how-to, and it was really important to them to have that step-by-step. And they sent a, a camera crew to the farm here, and we shot the everything but the stuff on the plate was shot here on our farm. And uh, I remember that the photographer, you know, kind of a couple of times, he's like, oh, you know, all these steps, do we really have to? And and story was really clear. Yeah, we really want this to be no, no step left out. You know, you could really go start to stop. So that was really intentional from their perspective. And I, I'm glad they did it now. We'd, we'd done, done something similar. We did have all the steps. Um, we just didn't take it quite as far as they did and... and definitely it it added added to the book i'm assuming that it did take a long long time to get all of these these photos taken because i can imagine how long setting up all of those would have been and that would have also meant that you had a lot of prep work going into this as in you had to have all this stuff ready at at the right time did in fact i remember when signing the contract for the book and everything and like christopher said we'd we'd taken a lot of photos along the way of the steps and of the ferments and that was part of the deal was that um, we were going to remake a significant portion of the ferments <laughs> for the photo shoot and it was like oh no but it ended up being a lot of fun I, I made you know smaller batches than I would normally make so we'd have just enough <laughs> yeah and well I mean Come on, you were already pros at this. I mean, you were fermentistas at the farmer's market. You you had this. So like making a lot of something, maybe not all these different kinds of things, but making a lot of things is something that you had experience with. Uh, maybe we can switch over and talk a little bit about your your food company that you had. I mean, what inspired you to go from just say, like you were saying, making your sauerkrauts and whatnot to actually starting a fermentation business and sharing this stuff with the world? We've done a lot of different things. Like a lot of homesteaders, you know, you try to figure out a way there's a romanticized notion that you can make a living from a little holding like we have. We just have 40 acres here in Southern Oregon. And so I trained as a cider maker. Uh, Kirsten, we made cheese. We hand milked, you know, a few cows and a lot of goats for a few years. That would, That's a really thing to, great thing to get into when you have kids. But once the kids stop milking, it's, it, you really got to want to do it. And Kirsten and I really, and I just really didn't want to do it twice a day like that. So at one time we thought we were going to sell farmstead cheeses and we gave a lot away. We made some really good cheeses. Um, I, we built two fermentation caves in, uh, into the hillside as part of the USDA kitchen we put on the place. It was his and hers, his and hers, and I had my fermentation for ciders on one side, and Kirsten was going to do cheeses on the other side. You know, it just, the economics of putting in a cider business, you know, I learned that you had to be very mechanical because the lines always break down, and Brandon, I'm I'm the farthest from mechanical you can get, so I knew we were going to be in trouble. In the meantime, Kirsten had made so many different ferments, and people were asking for them. And you know, one day I think we just realized, you know, this is something that we're really good at, not the things we had planned. And so that's how we we <laughs> eventually her fermentation cave became vegetable ferments, and eventually they creeped over into my fermentation cave. And then one day that all of our caves are full of fermented vegetables and that's when we were in full production and then this full production 
are you still doing any any of this, or has it, have you kind of phased out of that as well? We phased it out. Although, uh, cautionary warning: when you when you think you're getting out of the business and you're just going to write a book, then you have, then we make crap. We're still making a lot of ferments because when we do uh, demos of bookstores and signings, we bring it you know with us because you really got to taste it right to to really know. Um, those flavors and and we've found that people just aren't sure and then they taste it and then they say oh my gosh you know lemon dill and they say oh we'll try the cordito and then we work them the way down and pretty soon they're looking up the recipes in the book and the next thing you know they're excited and they they think they can do it and they're going to go home and do it but without those samples you really are just looking at beautiful pictures but you don't have that flavor and so we're still making krauts uh, <laughs> and probably will be for a while but we stopped production, you know, commercially, um, and Kirsten actually trained uh, several people that were our customers, and now they're making krauts in the valley. Uh, a farmer and a deli owner uh, have their own labels and are making a lot of krauts in the valley, so we feel like we kind of passed the baton on to them. For someone that's maybe really interested in doing what you have, what you did do, and starting a small vegetable farm business. I mean, what do you say? I mean, since you did phase out of it, is that just because it wasn't exactly what you wanted long-term? I mean, what do you say to someone that's trying to get into this? What are the things to consider? Well, I think it's a great business to get into, but you're going to hit a point where you need to... We, we got to a point where we had two employees and they were making a good living and we weren't really paying ourselves. And the next step would to we needed to scale up even larger, and that would have been the point where, and so you look at distribution and shipping and those kind of things. And, you know, in the end, you got to keep asking yourself as business owners, is this what we were in for, in it for? Is this what we really want to do? And Kirsten and I, we just wanted to work together. That, that was the whole goal of all this. Um, and so it got to the point where Kirsten was still homeschooling the kids. I still also had a full-time job, plus we were doing this as well, you know. And it it wasn't the life that we were looking for. Um, so instead of scaling up even more, uh, we said we just couldn't give it enough life that it needed. But I I think right now with the you know the trends that are going on um, with fermented foods, it's a, it's a great time, especially if you're near a city or large urban area and you have a source of a lot of great organic vegetables. I think it's a great time. I think actually if you are a farmer. That, that you're in the sweet spot because it's the farmer that, that can really take advantage of this um, process. Here in Oregon, we're super lucky. We have a farm direct law, so um, it makes it really simple for a farmer. But I think anywhere, as long as they can put in, you know, a production space that, that complies with their laws, they suddenly have this opportunity to value add and save the the produce that, you know, is, is either overabundant or, you know, they're not going to be able to sell it in time. One of the people that sort of took over our recipes and our, our place in the local market is a farmer and she has been able to come up with really incredible flavors. Um, for example, burdock. We would never be able to afford $6 a pound burdock in order to make a burdock kimchi, but a few years ago, she had way more burdock. It was a great burdock year than um, the market would bear. And so she was able, we came up with a, together a burdock kimchi recipe that is, you know, out of this world. And it, 
it preserved that burdock and gave her a chance to sell it over time as a value-added product. So that's just one example of how the farmer producer really has an advantage. Is that part of what your the kind of workshops you teach? Do you teach to people that want to do this as a business or do you teach mainly to a general public that has just never fermented before at all? We've done we've done both. We've we've definitely done workshops for farmers. We are getting more and more of the general public all the time. And I've gone into a few different restaurant kitchens and helped them set up in-house fermenting as well. But yeah, we've We've been working with all kinds of people. It's just it's just great to see how many people are able to put it as part of their business. Now, I'm just kind of curious. It sounds like you live in a really beautiful area of, from having talked with you previously. Do you think that your living out in a rural setting has influenced your draw to fermentation at all? I mean, do you think that, that, that part of that being intrinsically more connected with food and land has had any influence on, on you and your fermentation, or is that just unfounded? Absolutely. I, um, I've i been preserving food since we've been out here, um, canning and the usual freezing, dehydrating, and so on, and definitely trying to find new ways to make the garden's abundance tasty and preserve the nutrition um, has been a huge influence. And of course, being out here with the animals and with the big garden and with the orchards has all contributed to that. You know, it's, it's sort of the whole, I think the whole package as far as the lifestyle and and then discovering how the fermented vegetables, you know, increase the nutrition and then keep the flavor, especially some things that you would never want to can because of the low acidity. Um, you know, you end up with 45 minutes in a pressure canner and mush at the end of the whole, the whole job. Mm, delicious. <laughs> right? Yeah. So it does really sound though, like you're like a lot of people that get into fermentation today, it seems that it's, um, it's maybe for health benefits. Uh, I, I know a lot for me is just the deliciousness and the DIY fun of the matter, but it sounds like for you, you kind of came from the perspective of needing to figure out a way to do something with the vegetables or the food that you had on hand. Absolutely. Yeah, we we did. We came at it from that perspective. And many of our batches were super large. And we have, um, you know, the Koreans have their kimchi refrigerator and we have our ferment refrigerator um, that's, you know, filled with the year's pickles and krauts and herbs and whatnot. Um, So when we wrote the book, though, we realized that not everybody lives the way we do, and we scaled everything to mostly the kitchen size. <laughs> and, and I think at the same time, I mean, you really expanded on the deliciousness aspect. I mean, just flipping through the book, there are just so many things in there that I think people would that it's it's not coming from that same perspective. At least um, it doesn't. I don't get that sense as much. Like even though you came from the place of making these vegetables into something edible and preservable, really like it seems approachable for anyone, whether they're whatever reason they have, but most, a lot of it, the culinary aspect of like, how can we make these things taste as, as good as possible? Where's that switch? Like, where'd you go from boring sauerkraut to amazingness? I think it was, it was just fun. You know, we, we first added just a few things to, to cabbage and then we added a few more vegetables to cabbage and, and it was, uh, like you said, you know, it, it's just fun. It's fun to see what happens and to experiment with with the flavors that are produced because 
in a way, that's the excitement of it is because this um, sort of renaissance of this process is bringing with it um, what we know now about flavor and combining things from all over the world, spices. Um, that's, that's where the flavor part started coming in, and it became it became almost a challenge to see how good something could be. And you have a, a, a very nice little dedication in the beginning of the book referring to your children, and they <laughs> seem like they were your quality assurance team to a certain extent. I mean, tasting all these different kinds of things and maybe wishing that you were bakers or chocolatiers. But do they still, having grown up in a household and maybe uh, assuming some of them have at least um, are, are grown at this point, have do they still crave fermented vegetables? They do. In fact, uh, our second oldest, our first, we're grandparents now, so we have a... Uh, four-month-old granddaughter. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, so she's she's not eating vegetables yet, but I'm, I'm assuming that they know that as soon as she starts munching on things, we'll try to sneak some sauerkraut in there somewhere. But she, um, her, so our oldest son, um, they visit the farm quite a bit, as much as we can get them over here, and we always send them packing with fermented vegetables, both of them. And they actually worked in the kitchens. In fact, there's... Uh, there's a braided uh, garlic scape in the photo, and that was both of them. They're both artists, and that was us leaving them uh, a day to do garlic scapes while we went to the farmer's market. We came home, and there were all these elaborately braided, you know, knotted <laughs> garlic scapes. It wasn't a it wasn't a productive day, but it was beautiful, and those ended up in the book, so that's kind of cool. Um, and then the second oldest one, he's now in Boulder. He just went to law school, and um, I'm actually I'm. I'm going on a trip and I'm bringing him some jars and some, he's, he missed it. So he's starting uh, some ferments in a, and this is a good example. He's in the, just a studio apartment and you really can do it, you know, in such a tiny space, uh, you know, just a quart jar and you're good to go. So he's going to start doing his own, he started doing his own ferments in, uh, as he goes to school. So the other two are still at home, and, and uh, I think our daughter still wishes we would become chocolatiers in the near future, um, but they've, they crave it now, too. So it's, it's just always part of the, the table. They just know there's going to be a few ferments out. That's great, and I, I think that's the thing. A lot of people just get so disconnected from these kind of flavors, but I mean, once a person's hooked, I mean, it's kind of hard to turn away. You know, Brandon, and, and the thing is, like at the farmer's markets, um, Little kids, you know, they're still they're still inquisitive, and they're about eye level. And we would have six or eight, at least eight ferments out, and they're bright colors. And you know, the kids would come up, and they wanted to taste. And sometimes we'd hear the parents say, "Oh, that's sauerkraut. You know, you're not going to like that." And we just try to make eye contact with the kid and say, "Hey, do you want to try it? Go ahead." And I would say more times than not. They they loved it, and they would we'd have to just keep them from double dipping, right? You know, and get another fork, and they would keep working the way down through. And you'd look up at the parent, and they're just surprised, like, "Wow, I would have never thought." So I think it it's in there, and especially when we're little, and you don't know yet that you don't like it. Um, those are the kind of flavors that you know you can get hooked on from a early age. We have a great story that. Um of course, Spark It here ends in the winter, and um, we got a email from a parent whose daughter had asked for two things for Christmas, a bathrobe and a big jar of lemon dill kraut. That's great. 
See, I think this there's a reason why this kind of stuff uh, you filled an entire book with inspiring stuff. I mean, it's just people crave this. And I guess just switching over a little bit to your your writing, you both collaborated on this book. Was it kind of a 50-50 split through the entire process or did each of you kind of have your different specializations? Oh, uh, no, it was a major seesaw. So Kirsten was working on, she's she's the writer and she was working on a memoir and she had a children's book and she had her projects and I had, I had been thumbing through Sandor's Wild Fermentation and I counted pages and I said, hey, you know, there's only like 16 or 17 pages on vegetables in this. You know, somebody ought to write a book that's all vegetables. That would be really cool. And she said, cool, do it. And so I, you know, being a guy, I said, fine, I will. And you, we would not be having this conversation if, if I had continued because it, it was long on stories and history and... Uh, it was super short on recipes, like none, because Kirsten was the one that would actually put the flavors together. And Kirsten's a cook that doesn't write anything down. So the recipes didn't exist outside of her head. And so at some point I came back to her and said, baby, I really need some recipes for this book. It's a, you know, it's a cookbook and I don't have any recipes. And uh, it was me convincing her to come on. And then when she did, she wrote most of the rest of the book because it's her that really knew how to put those things together. And it's a challenge. Uh, we're very different cooks. So I'm the kind of person who needs a recipe, right, to kind of anchor myself in it and feel comfortable. And then I'll do some experimenting a little bit, a little bit of this or a little bit of that. Kirsten's at the other end. I mean, she knows where the cookbooks are, and she gets them down now and then, but not a lot. She just goes off of, you know, just, in, I don't know, intuition or some kind of other power, and she puts all these flavors together. And so when you write a cookbook, you actually have to write things down. So a lot of the experimentation was just getting it down to where uh, I could do it. And if I could do it without her, then I knew, okay, we had the recipe nailed, and we just worked it through everything then. So it was pretty collaborative. And then on the meals, as she said, I took the only two sections I really took is uh, the cocktails, and then I took desserts because I'm kind of the sweet tooth in the group. And Kirsten, the rest of the meals were really Kirsten's. It sounds like that might have been part of the reason why it also took three years to write. I mean, did you go into this <laughs> expecting it to to be that much of an investment in, in time, or did you assume that this would just you'd be able to whip this out? Really quick. There's the latter. <laughs> I think, well, we, we, we had a couple of false starts. I mean, there was definitely, we were really enthusiastic about it, and um, we were moving forward. And then the season with, the, with our business really, really picked up. And so I would say in that three years, there's definitely 10 months or so where not a word was written. Um, obviously, there was a lot of experimenting going on and, and laying the foundation, but definitely um, not a word was written. So we, we did have to go back and recreate a lot <laughs> to make that happen. Yeah, and I think, though, in general, it doesn't seem like there's that much lulling going on because it's just it's jam-packed with with a lot of information in it and you even have things like um your meet the fermentistas sections throughout the book where you're kind of highlighting other people's stories or anecdotes are, are these people that you knew previously to writing the book or a lot of these were reached out specifically for the book yeah i reached out specifically for the book i we have a lot of little 
tips and a lot of, you know, fun facts and just stuff that we've sprinkled throughout um, in, in quotes here and there, too. I really like books that have a lot of story in them, and so I, it felt important to me to sort of have this road trip of, you know, what are, what are some of these people that are, that are doing the same thing doing out there in the wide, wide world? I would have probably put even more of those in because, again, I like, I like the stories. And you're right, it is jam-packed, and we actually had to cut um, just to make it all fit. <laughs> into the book, um, I think about uh, 20 or more recipes, and, and we did take out some of the more obscure vegetables. It just wasn't all going to fit. Does that mean in another few years there will be a sequel? <laughs> Could be. I haven't committed to anything yet. <laughs> well, that's that's awesome. I mean, you, you teach um, a lot of workshops, too. Let's just kind of wrap up and talk a little bit about, like, do you have anything coming up? Um, we have a few things coming up. Um, there's there's a few things that that are being scheduled that aren't. I'm going to say firmed up. So there's no point in putting those out there. Uh, we have a class locally, I think, on November first, and then there's a lot of events that are going to be happening after the new year. So I would say. Keep in touch with our website. We keep everything on there. Yeah, and where would uh, where should people go? Is it just right on your on your website? And- yeah, um, our website is fermentista.us, and we have a classes and conversations link on there. We both are doing the Twitter thing now. Plus, I think Kirsten's got some other things as well. So I'm at fermentista on Twitter, and Kirsten's at Kirsten K. Shockey. And then we do have a Fermentista Love Me Some Fermented Vegetables Facebook page. I'll make sure that all of those end up in, in the show notes so people can get involved and, and see what you're up to. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or words of inspiration for people that maybe want to dive deeper into fermenting different kinds of vegetables? The advice we'd have is just be brave and do it. It's a safe food. It skipped a few generations, I think. But I, as you said earlier, you know that do your do it yourself momentum is here, and people just are loving to take control again and know where the food comes from and make great flavors. And so I think now's a, a great time to experiment with it and the flavors that you can do. It's super simple. It's as you know, it's very inexpensive to do. And it's actually a lot of fun. We've got a couple of groups that are doing book clubs, and what they do is then they get together and they all make different ferments and they come together and you know have a big ferment fest just around the books. So I think it's a real social thing too that you can do. Just just dive in there and have fun at it. Be brave. I think that's what we meet the most is people that deep in their heart they want to try um, fermentation and they just aren't sure if they can do it. And fermented vegetables compared to milk or some of these others is so simple and so safe. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for writing this this wonderful book. And uh, thanks for joining me on the show today. Absolutely. Thanks Thanks for having us. And all of these show notes will be uh, at firmup.com slash podcast slash 87. And then you can also reach out to us at uh, firmup on Twitter, at firmup on Facebook, and anywhere else at firmup. And until next time, Firm up.